All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We're in the section of the book of Revelation where God's judgments against Israel are unfolding. And this book details Jesus' legal complaint against Israel because they've rejected him and killed him. We began with a glorious vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, in chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw letters to seven churches that indicated that Jesus is the one who evaluates and judges them. We saw the throne room scene of chapters 4 and 5, where the worship of God in heaven is constant, and it's centered on the Lamb, Jesus. In that scene, the Lamb came to the throne and took the scroll that had seven seals, and the Lamb is the only one who's qualified to break the seals open and to execute the judgment that is contained in the scroll. Then in chapter 6, the first six seals were broken, and then we had an interlude in chapter 7 last week before the seventh seal could be broken and the judgments enacted. First, God's faithful people had to be marked out and sealed. So the 144,000, the faithful remnant, were sealed so that they would be kept from judgment. And we saw that the 144,000 is really a great multitude from every tribe and nation. It's the church. And now in chapter 8, we're ready for the seventh seal to be broken. And what we'll find is that the contents of the seventh seal is actually another set of seven. It's seven trumpet judgments that will fall on the land. So chapter 8 gives us the first four of those trumpets, and then we'll see the fifth and sixth trumpets in chapter 9 later. So let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 8. Follow along as I read. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So what's happening in this chapter? Well, we finally see the seventh seal broken open. And what happens when that seal is opened? What happens is seven trumpet judgments. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. So now the trumpet judgments begin. And in chapter 8, we have the first four of those seven trumpets. And the chapter finishes with an eagle announcing three woes. And those three woes are the final three trumpet judgments that are still yet to come. Let's observe a few things about the first, in the first five verses that are going to kind of help us to understand these trumpet judgments. First of all, notice again that it's the lamb who's opening <clears throat> The seals, it's Jesus who's executing the judgments, bringing these things to pass. And these are judgments on Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. When this seventh seal is opened, what happens? First, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Then the trumpets begin to blow. The judgments begin to occur. And then after the silence begins and the trumpets are handed out, Another angel comes to the incense altar. He has a golden censer or coal pan. That's just, it's, it's just a pan on a long pole, and it was used to handle the coals that were on the altar. So this is from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And this is something that a priest does. He offers incense along with the prayers of the saints, and this rises up before God. Now, what are the prayers of the saints? Well, Two chapters ago, Revelation 6 and verse 10, we saw that the souls of the saints, which are under the altar, okay, the same altar that we're talking about here, the, that the angel is standing at, it's the altar of incense, those souls of the saints are crying out in prayer. What is it that they're praying? Well, if you remember, they're praying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. See, their prayers are prayers that God would act to judge their enemies, that God would act to vindicate his people. In other words, that God would judge the Jews, Israel, for their persecution of the Christians. And now in chapter 8, those prayers are about to be answered. The trumpet judgments are, at least in part, God's answer to the prayers of the saints. Remember in chapter 6, God told them, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed, as they themselves had been. Well, now that time has come. Then in verse 5, the angel takes the fire from the altar and throws it down on the earth. And that's the beginning of these judgments. And then we see, Peals of thunder and lightnings and rumblings and an earthquake. And that's the same kind of language we heard in chapter 4 describing the throne room of God. Like every other chapter of Revelation, 
There's a lot of symbolism and strange pictures in this chapter. We've got seals and trumpets and incense and thunder and lightning and hail and fire and blood and a burning mountain thrown into the sea and the sea becoming blood and ships being destroyed and a falling star named Wormwood and water being made bitter and the sun and the moon and the stars darkened. Remember that our rule of interpretation here in Revelation when we're trying to figure out what all this stuff means is we always have to go back to the Old Testament to find the explanations for John's visions. John knows his Bible. When he sees these visions, he's taking the language of the Old Testament and he's applying it to the things that he saw. He's applying it to the situation in his day. So before we look at the individual trumpet judgments, let's get some of the Old Testament background set in our minds. So first of all, remember, But in the last chapter, we saw the 144,000 sealed. They were marked or sealed so that the judgment wouldn't fall on them. So the judgment has been held off until the 144,000 are marked. And now that they've been marked, the fire can be thrown down. And this comes from Ezekiel chapter 10. If you remember last week, we saw in Ezekiel 9... The faithful in Jerusalem were sealed or marked on their foreheads so that they would not face the judgment. The man with the writing case went through the city of Jerusalem ahead of the executioners and he marked the faithful. And then if you were to turn after Ezekiel 9 to the very beginning of Ezekiel 10 verse 2, the one on the throne says to the man with the writing case who's just, who's marking out everybody, Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. It's the exact same thing that we see in Revelation 8. Now, if you were to go back into the book of Deuteronomy, God gives instructions to Israel on what to do if a particular city rejects God and follows after idols. If that happens, then the inhabitants were to be killed And the animals were killed and all of the spoils of the city were gathered together in the city square and then it was to be set on fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. But a burnt offering has to be lit with fire from the altar. So when we see the city of Jerusalem here being judged with fire from the altar, it's telling us that it's being given over to utter destruction. It's being made a whole burnt offering because they've rejected God completely. Next, think about the thunder and rumblings and lightning and earthquake. These are the same wonders that we saw back in chapter 4 in the throne room. And like we saw back then, This language is directing our attention to Mount Sinai. The same kinds of things happened on Mount Sinai when God was establishing his covenant with the nation of Israel. And so this time period in Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the conquest of the promised land, that whole time period in Israel's history, that's the model for what John is describing here in this language. Let me just sketch that out in a little more detail before we look at each of the trumpets. 
what are the first four trumpets? Well, number one, we've got hail and fire that devastates the land. Number two, we've got a burning mountain that turns the sea to blood. Number three, we've got a burning star that turns the water bitter. And number four, darkness. Think about the plagues in Egypt. In the seventh plague in Egypt, hail and fire rains down and devastates the land and its crops. Well, in Revelation 8, the first trumpet rains hail and fire on the land, devastating the, tre devastating the trees and the grass. In the first plague in Egypt, the Nile River was turned to blood and the fish die. In Revelation 8, the second trumpet has the sea turning to blood and a third of the creatures die. In the ninth plague in Egypt, darkness covered the land. And in Revelation 8, the fourth trumpet brings darkness. Sun, moon, stars are being darkened. Now, I skipped the third trumpet, but it is related too. In the third trumpet, the burning star falls into the water and turns it bitter. Well, back in Exodus, after Israel was brought out of Egypt, you know, they come through the Red Sea, <clears throat> And then Moses sings a song of God's deliverance. That's Exodus 15. In the same chapter, before they come to Mount Sinai, they come to Marah. And the waters at Marah were bitter. And God told Moses to throw a tree, <clears throat> or the word could be translated wood, into the water. And when he did, the water was no longer bitter. Well, here in Revelation 8, the third trumpet judgment, a burning star falls into the water. What's the name of the star? Wormwood. And when this wood, wormwood, is thrown into the water, what happens? The water turns bitter. It's the opposite of what happened at Mara. <clears throat> Instead of the bitterness being taken away, now the water becomes bitter. What is God communicating with all of this? Well, in Exodus, in that whole story, <clears throat> the nation of Israel was being established. They're brought out of Egypt. They're provided for. They're given the covenant at Mount Sinai. But now in Revelation, Israel is being disestablished, torn down. The covenant ended. In fact, at Marah, <clears throat> after the waters were made sweet, Here's what God said to his people. <clears throat> so this is Exodus 15. Moses sings his song of deliverance. Then we have the story of the bitter waters at Marah. And then here's what God says right after that. <clears throat> if you will di diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Do you see? If you obey, then the plagues won't fall on you. <clears throat> Implied there, but if you disobey, if you break my covenant, then you will be subject to the same kind of judgments that I brought on Egypt. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Revelation. Another way to say this is, Israel has become Egypt. Don't miss this. Picture it this way. 
in the land of Egypt, you had two groups of people. You have the Egyptians and the Israelites. And God is rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. And in order to make that happen, he brings judgment down on the Egyptians. Well, now, leading up to A.D. 70, in the book of Revelation, we have in Israel two groups of people. We have the Jews, we have the Christians. And God is delivering his people, all those who are his faithful followers, the Christians, out of the city of Jerusalem, and his judgment is falling on the Jews. Plagues and trumpets. The Christians have taken the place of the Israelites, and the Jews have taken the place of Egypt. They've become the enemies of God and of his people. When God's people were finally ready to enter the promised land, after they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years, God said that he would bring them victory and that when he did that, he'd be bringing judgment on the people of the land of Canaan. What was the very first city in Canaan that Israel fought against? Jericho. So they cross the Jordan River, they come to Jericho, And how did they win this battle? God told them to blow trumpets, announcing God's judgment on Jericho. They marched around the city of Jericho for seven days, one time around the city each day. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And apart from the trumpets, they marched in silence. Joshua 6, verse 10, Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. And when the people shouted and the trumpets were blown, then the walls came tumbling down. God gave his people the victory while judging those who were his enemies. Well, here in Revelation 8, when the seventh seal is opened, what happens first? There's silence for half an hour. Nobody says a word. Just like the Israelites didn't speak outside of Jericho. Followed by trumpets that announce God's judgment. And just like the walls of Jericho fell down, Jesus said about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that not one stone would be left upon another. All of these Old Testament images, the plagues in Egypt, the journey to Sinai, God giving the covenant, the conquest of the land, All of that is the establishment of Israel as a nation, as God's people. Now the same language is being used, but it's describing the disestablishment of Israel. Because the church is now the true Israel, the covenant people of God. The Jews who rejected and murdered Jesus have shown themselves to be unfaithful to the covenant, outside the covenant. And as the Jews themselves said in Matthew 27, verse 25, regarding Jesus, his blood be upon us and on our children. And their declaration is now coming true. Let's look briefly at the specific trumpet judgments. And a couple of them we've really already kind of talked about. But the first trumpet is hail and fire and blood. And it burns up a third of the land. And by the way, when you hear the third 
all the way through this passage, there's a third of this and a third of that. It's, I, I don't know of any significance to that other than the fact <clears throat> that before it was always a fourth. So now it's a greater part. It's as if things are intensifying. <clears throat> well, this burns up a third of the land. <clears throat> Remember, the word earth here is land. It's not the word for planet earth as a whole. It's the word for dirt. A particular piece of dirt, a land. <clears throat> Caden, could you give me that water? <clears throat> Thanks. <clears throat> Sorry, thank you. <clears throat> All right, so it's a particular piece of dirt, a land. And it's usually when, that, when that's talking about it this way, it's talking about the land of Israel. And that's the land that's in view here. It's the, the judgment is falling on the land of Israel. Now, I'm going to share with you this morning some quotes from the Jewish historian Josephus. And Josephus, like I said, is a Jewish historian. He's not Christian. He's not, he's not writing to try to support anything that Jesus said or what John said in Revelation or anything like that. But his history of the Jewish war reads almost like a commentary on the things we're talking about. He was actually present at Jerusalem as the Romans laid siege to the city. Okay? And as I give you quotes like this, remember that this is not scripture. It's not as important as the rest of what we're seeing, but it can help us in that it shows how the things that John was prophesying actually happened. All right. Well, when Vespasian, the Roman general, marched down through Galilee to the city of Gadara, this is just southeast of the Sea of Galilee, Josephus writes, he also set fire not only to the city itself, but also to, but to all the villas and small cities that were round about it. So we have fire on the land. Okay? Also describing Vespasian's march through Galilee, Galilee was all over filled with fire and blood. Sounds a lot like what John was saying. And then John talks about how the trees are gone, Josephus describes this. He says, the Romans cut down all the trees that were in the country that adjoined to the city and that for 90 furlongs round about. That's a distance of a little over 11 miles. So picture the city of Jerusalem and about 11 miles out, it's all gone. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country every way and its trees were all cut down. You can see how John's vision of the first trumpet describes what actually did happen in Israel. The second trumpet <clears throat> is the great mountain burning with fire, thrown into the sea, and the sea becomes blood. And a third of the creatures die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. There's two things in the background of the mountain imagery here. First, in Jeremiah 51, God is <clears throat> proclaiming judgment on Babylon. And he speaks of Babylon as a burned out mountain. Jeremiah 51, 25, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a burnt mountain. He's judging 
Babylon for their evil, and they are like a mountain that is burned out. So when John describes a burning mountain here, in the context of judgment on Israel, he's saying that Israel has become like Babylon. And when we get to Revelation 17, we will actually see that Jerusalem is described as a prostitute with Babylon the Great on her forehead. Jerusalem has become like Babylon, and they'll be judged like Babylon, like a mountain set on fire by God. Now, the other part of the background here is what Jesus said in Matthew 21. After the fig tree was withered at the word of Jesus, Jesus told his disciples, he said, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, when, when Jesus says this mountain, it's obvious which mountain he's talking about. They're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount. The temple is the main thing in view, sitting up on the mountain as they're having this conversation. And Jesus says to his disciples, if the time comes that you pray for God's judgment to fall on Jerusalem and the temple, God will answer your prayer. The temple will be judged. It will, symbolically, be taken up and thrown into the sea. I was always confused as to why that scene where Jesus talks about the fig tree and the mountain, and then he talks about prayer. But the reason is, this is exactly what's going on in Revelation, Revelation 6. It's the prayers of the saints. They're praying that God would act, that he would judge. And now we're seeing that this is actually what's happening. Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray for the judgment of the temple in Jerusalem. And they do. Why does this, these trumpet judgments sound? Why does it happen? Because of the prayers of the saints offered on the incense altar. How long, O Lord, until you avenge your people? How long until you send your judgment on your enemies who persecute your people? How long until you send judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem and the temple? And now because Jesus' disciples have prayed just like he told them, Jerusalem and the temple are being judged. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, just before the scene with the bitter water at Marah, Moses sings the song of deliverance. They've come through the Red Sea and Moses sings this song. And part of his song says this, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary. O Lord, which your hands have established. So where is the mountain that God placed his sanctuary? It's the temple mount in Jerusalem. That mountain where God placed his sanctuary, the temple, is now being judged. That mountain has taken on the character of Babylon. The Jews and their leaders have become enemies of God. They've rejected and killed God's son, Jesus. And so now that mountain faces judgment. When it happens, here's how Josephus describes it. The holy house was on fire. And because this hill was high, 
and the works at the temple were very great, one would have thought that the whole city had been on fire. One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. This second trumpet judgment also includes the sea becoming blood and ships being destroyed. Now, if you're like me, when you think of Israel, you don't think of ships. They were not typically a seafaring people. But Josephus describes how some of the Jews, as the, as the Romans were advancing down through Galilee, heading down towards Jerusalem, some of the Jews who escaped fled to the coast at the city of Joppa. They built ships and went out and dedicated themselves to a life of being pirates because that was how they figured they could survive the devastation that was happening on the land. But the Romans actually follow them out to Joppa. And as the Romans came to Joppa to deal with them, here's what Josephus says happened. The people in Joppa fled to their ships and lay at sea all night out of the reach of their darts. So as the Romans come, everybody that lives in the city piles into all the boats and they all go out into the sea to try to stay out of reach of the Romans. Now listen to how Josephus tells what happened. This is a long quote, so just listen as I read it for you. Now as these people of Joppa were floating about in the sea, in the morning there fell a violent wind upon them. It's called by those that sail there the black north wind. And there dashed their ships one against another and dashed some of them against the rocks and carried many of them by force while they strove against the opposite waves into the main sea. For the shore was so rocky and had so many of the enemy upon it that they were afraid to come to land. Nay, the waves rose so very high that they drowned them, nor was there any place where they could fly nor any way to save themselves while they were thrust out of the sea by the violence of the wind, if they stayed where they were, and out of the city by the violence of the Romans. And much lamentation there was when the ships were dashed against one another, and a terrible noise when they were broken to pieces, and some of the multitude that were in them were covered with waves and so perished. Again, a great many were embarrassed with shipwrecks, but some of them thought that to die by their own swords was lighter than by the sea. And so they killed themselves before they were drowned, although the greatest part of them were carried by the waves and dashed to pieces against the abrupt parts of the rocks, insomuch that the sea was bloody a, lo <clears throat> a long way and the maritime parts were full of dead bodies. For the Romans came upon those that were carried to the shore and destroyed them. And the number of the bodies that were thus thrown out of the sea was 4,200. <clears throat> Shipwrecks. The sea turns to blood. Just like what John's describing. He, he, Josephus says something very similar as the Romans came to the Sea of Galilee itself up in the northern part of Israel. Here's how Josephus described this. This is Vespasian's army coming to the Sea of Galilee. They destroyed a lot of the ships and killed a lot of the people. And Josephus says, one might then see the lake all bloody 
They're full of dead bodies, for not one of them escaped. And a terrible stink and a very sad sight there was on the following days over that country. For as for the shores, they were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies. The testimony of history bears witness to the truth of what John's visions said would happen. The third trumpet we've really already talked about. As the blazing star wormwood falls on the water, it's made bitter. And this is a reversal of what happened at Mara. Israel's now facing the judgment of God rather than his protection and blessing. And the fourth trumpet is language that we've seen and talked about before as well. The sun, moon, and stars go dark. These heavenly bodies are often symbols of earthly rulers. Every time, every time in the Bible, all through the Old Testament, when this language is used, it is used to describe the military defeat of a nation. That's what the sun, moon, and stars going dark means. It's the God-ordained order of society being torn apart, going dark. It's decreation language. What God has made is being unmade because it's rebelled against him. And so Israel here is being decreated. Hopefully it's clear from looking at this chapter that what we're seeing as these trumpet judgments unfold is God's judgment on Israel. He's judging Jerusalem and the temple because the Jews have rejected his son Jesus and killed him. So what do we do with this text? What do we learn from it? How do we apply something like this to our life today? Well, there's a number of things that we could talk about. But I want to simply narrow it down to one topic this morning, and that is prayer. Everything that happens in this chapter happens as an answer to prayer. God's people pray that God would act in their defense. That those who are persecuting his people would face his judgment. And that prayer is offered on the incense altar and the smoke of it goes up before the throne of God. It's the sweet smell that comes up before God. Jesus' disciples pray that this mountain would be picked up and thrown into the sea and the sea is the place of judgment and death. It happens. The mountain is judged. It's set on fire and destroyed. So let me challenge us this morning to think about three aspects of prayer that we see in this passage. And I'm saying this as much, if not more, to myself than I am to you. Because I need to learn to be a better prayer. Okay? So if you're feeling this morning like, well, I'm not good at praying or I don't pray enough, you're not the only one. We need to hear what God says. Okay, so first of all, Three things. The, the prayer and worship of the church has cosmic significance. That's the first thing I want you to see. The people of God pray and God responds. God has given us instruction about what we're supposed to do when we gather together. We worship God together. Remember the worship scene in Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of God? The worship of God there is constant. And what we do on earth, especially when we gather together, is supposed to reflect that. And part of what we do in worship is prayer. We make our requests known to God. And God answers. George Swinnick said, 
Prayer is one of the great ordinances that batters down the strongholds of the devil. Hence, he sets his wits at work to divert men from it. It is the soul's armor and Satan's terror. So when the church cries out to God about what is happening in the world, God will respond. Now, he may not respond when you think he should, and he may not respond in the way you think he should, but he will respond. So the worship of the church has cosmic significance. The second thing is we should pray the imprecatory prayers or psalms. The imprecatory prayers or psalms are those prayers that beg God to judge the wicked, to act on behalf of his people. Thomas Case wrote, one great use which Christians should make of reading the scriptures is to learn from thence the language of prayer. Oh, that the professors of this age, meaning those who profess to follow Christ, the professors of this age would in this particular learn what to pray and how to pray for their brethren in tribulation. You might feel in our culture that that's too mean. We're Christians. We're supposed to be nice. Niceness is the essence of Christianity, isn't it? No, it's not. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, which often means kindness and gentleness, but Jesus, filled with the Spirit, called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and children of the devil. And Jesus, filled with the Spirit, told his disciples to pray for the destruction of the temple, for it to be cast into the sea, for God's judgment to fall. Prayers like this are to be prayed not from a desire for personal revenge or vengeance, but from a desire to see God's justice and glory realized. Matthew Poole explains that the psalmist, when he prays these prayers, prays not from a love of vengeance or from personal revenge, but he prays from a zeal for divine justice. We need to remember that, for instance, if we have compassion on a victim and we want to see justice done, then that necessarily means vengeance against the perpetrator. Both sides of the coin have to be there. David Dixon writes, it's lawful for the godly to rejoice in God's justice against the obstinate enemies of his people. Provided their joy be indeed in God's justice, not in the destruction of the creatures, but in the manifestation of God's just avenging hand. We should pray for it. We should desire it, but we should be desiring it for God's sake and for his glory, for his justice, not out of personal vengeance and a desire to see those persons destroyed. At the same time, to sit on the sidelines and just be okay with the evil that's at work in the world today is in some sense to be complicit with it. You've been given a weapon, a tool with which to fight because every one of us can pray. William Bridge said that prayer is the soul's weapon. <clears throat> and James, the brother of Jesus, as he writes his letter, 
He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So pray. And pray in alignment with God's desires, God's designs. Third, and finally, we should pray because Jesus is our great high priest. Why are our prayers heard by God? Because Jesus has opened the way for us to come to the Father. And just like we saw the angel standing at the altar of incense, doing that priestly act of offering those prayers, that's what Jesus does as our great high priest. Jesus told us, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Well, let me give you two things. First, praying in Jesus' name means praying according to his will. For something to happen in his name means that it represents his will and desires. So Matthew Henry wrote, God's word must be the guide of your desires and the ground of your expectations in prayer. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to his will. Second, praying in Jesus' name means praying in submission to his authority. When we pray in Jesus' name, it means that we're appealing to his authority. Now, does Jesus have authority? Yes, he tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, all of it. So we pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've gotten a glimpse of what it is in heaven in in Revelation 4 and 5. And we should be praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray it by Jesus' authority. He's our great high priest. He offers the incense of our prayers before God. And so we know that our prayers will be heard. Let's join together now in prayer. Lord, as we've looked at this chapter of Revelation, in some ways, again, what's going on in these these verses seems so distant from us. We have the language barrier and the symbols and all of that that's, that's there, just as well as just the content of it, the, the trumpets and judgments. And help us to understand what you're telling us. And help us, especially this morning, to see that what happens in that vision on earth happens as a result of the prayers of your people. May we take that to heart and may we become better prayers. May we learn to pray as you have taught us. You've given us prayers in your word that teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught us how to pray. So I pray that we would learn to pray, not just expressing our own desires, but seeking to have our desires line up with yours that we would pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to be dependent on you. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.